Welcome back to another episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. Micah, the NBA trade deadline is over. We survived all the Woj bombs, and now we're here covering what's going to be a crazy, crazy, one of the most insane trade deadlines of all time. Well, before we get to the Woj bombs, we also have to give some credit to Shams. I mean, at some point during this trade deadline, you're almost having your push notifications turned on on Twitter for at least those two. and. Sometimes I think that those two are just typing as fast as they can because they know the other one got the exact same call at the exact same time and they're racing to get the news out more quickly than the other. But the amount of just head bursters that we got yesterday, obviously Brooklyn and Philly, but that's not the only one. There are a couple of others that are lesser known and can enhance some teams moving forward. But it was the trade deadline of the century, at least so far, the amount of times that we get a blockbuster deal that includes two former all-stars, at least from last season, is almost once in a lifetime. So I'm really excited to jump into this, and I know you are as well. I want, before we kind of break down the teams and the trades and all that stuff, some big picture takes. Something that stood out to me from this trade deadline was that a lot of people going into it were like, not many moves are going to happen. A lot of teams want to stay pat teams feel good I think the opposite happened this year of like that mentality I think we got this all wrong I think teams actually thought for better or worse that they could upgrade themselves now for this season or for the long term and I think people forget that free agency this year not to go all the way to July but free agency is a little dead this year so teams are probably looking like hey if we're gonna make a move get some guys for the future do it now a lot of these moves had that mentality going into them you're right. A lot of them are geared towards the win now mode versus gearing for the future, especially among the top tier contenders. And I think that that's something having to do with looking at Milwaukee as a team that could potentially repeat Brooklyn and Philly in a way, just basically told the other your problem for our problem. And we can sort this out in some way, shape or form. And then in the Western conference, you have, I think the top two teams that are head and shoulders ahead of everybody else. And there were some minor moves that were made just to help teams kind of bridge the gap between those two to where you could reasonably make an argument that they could win a seven game series. I know we wanted to do kind of team by team analysis because we're doing winners and losers, but we cannot go another minute on this pod without talking about the James Harden trade, because it is rare not just in an NBA season, but in our lifetime where a superstar who's in the top 10, top 15 mix just gets moved. And for like this blockbuster sort of deal, the trade in terms of the actual uh, specifics was James Harden and Paul Millsap from Brooklyn. They go to Philly, Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond go to Brooklyn. And in addition, it's Philly's first rounder this year unprotected. And then a distant first rounder that's got some protections on it. We'll start with that from a pure value perspective. On the one hand, Daryl Morey gets his guy. We didn't think it was possible, but he got his guy. The the uh, We had a text thread yesterday going where the patience paid off. They kept Fiebel. If you're a Philly, you got to be happy with that. You only gave up Seth Curry and Drummond, where I see this as like a Seth Curry for James Harden upgrade, more so than a they traded Ben Simmons and Seth Curry to get James Harden, because Ben Simmons was never coming back. I think it's a pretty decent haul if you're Philly. You have to be pretty happy. And if you're Brooklyn, too, kind of everyone got a little bit of what they wanted here. Yes, everyone wins here, at least in the short term. If you're Brooklyn, you had to have looked at the James Harden situation as 
he has checked out mentally over these last couple of weeks and he could leave for nothing in the off season. So we might as well make this call. And then if you're Philly, you had to understand that Ben Simmons is your main holding back piece because you know that you can still get something for him, even if he's not quite the tier of player that James Harden is. He was enough in terms of his defensive prowess to be able to build a deal around that particular piece. And then I think that every team here is basically a winner, but there are a couple of players that I would say in particular are winners. First off, Props to both Ben Simmons and Daryl Morey. Both of them were working on different agendas here. Daryl Morey had one site in mind, which is to bring James Harden and pair him with Joel Embiid. And we'll get into some of the logistics of what that pairing will look like soon. But as for Daryl Morey, he knew that that was going to be his top priority to be able to fortify this team moving forward. And now that he's picked up his exception or yeah, his exception for next season, they will at least have a full year and a half of James Harden in Philly. And for the Philadelphia 76ers now, they were able to hold on to Thibault, hold on to Tyrese Maxey. Those two players were at some point in the cards for this potential trade. And I know that the Nets also threw in Paul Millsap, but that team is a winner. And then on the side of Brooklyn, you had to have known that there was some chemistry issues when it comes to James Harden's relationship with both Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. There have been reports that have come out over the last couple of hours that James had some serious problems with Kyrie's inability to be on the floor the entire time. And he felt as though they were going to run it back this coming postseason, similar to last season, because we can look at the big three era in Brooklyn as just a monumental failure on the level of Hakeem, Clyde, and Barkley, or potentially the, I guess, the Nash, Kobe, Powell, and Dwight level failure. Like the, that's like the perfect comp for it right there. Or like, because even like, everyone keeps saying the 0304 Lakers, like, oh, they got some guys, but they're all, these guys are kind of in their primer at the end. This is like a very... Like, you have Dwight Howard in the middle of his prime. Kobe's on that last year. Pau Gasol's still good. Nash, you get kind of as a fourth banana, and it just never works. This is kind of the same thing here. I didn't mean to jump in, but that's a great point that you brought up, though, where that situation got very untenable very, very fast, especially with – it seems like there was big friction between Kyrie and Harden. KD basically said he's kind of on the Kyrie stance here where he's like, I'm going to put all my trust in this guy because they dealt Harden. And I think an underrated thing that has not been talked about with all of this is that Brooklyn traded all those first rounders for Harden just to ship them away less than a year later. If we can really think about it, like that's a crazy development here where this can all go wrong for Brooklyn after this KD Kyrie era kind of ends in a couple of years. So now that you're Brooklyn, there are two ways to look at your potential future this season and moving forward is those two first round picks that they were able to acquire yesterday in that deal, which I think is probably the most underrated and overlooked part of this entire trade. I agree. I don't understand it from the point of view of the Nets as to go from a win in this situation to ultimately a move that could put you over the top as you look towards the future, especially this season, if their goal is to win the championship right now. And they were unable to move those two first round picks as well as people had murmured that Joe Harris would also be on the move and or Nicholas Claxton. 
there were potential rumors that that kind of a package could have required Miles Turner, or if they wanted to downsize a little bit, they also could have gotten the Serge Ibaka deal weeks ago, if not days ago. So I don't know really what Brooklyn looks at their team as thinking. They obviously have to think that they have a chance to win it all, but it's going to take, you know, heaven and earth from Kevin Durant to get through just the Eastern Conference. But now, as I now am grading teams and their outlooks going into the postseason for the Eastern Conference, I think that Philly and Milwaukee are slightly, ever so slightly ahead of Brooklyn, but the amount of shooting prowess that Brooklyn can put on the floor alongside Ben Simmons, who is going to now be in the least ball handler heavy role of his entire career, that spells scary hours, unlike the whole Harden, Irving, and Durant trio, which we got to see for 16 games. See, that's the thing that I think people forget about this trade is that this has a ton of downside for Brooklyn just because I don't know if you can repair the chemistry and get – like you saw the stat where no team – they're on a 10-game losing streak right now. No team has won the title after having a double-digit win streak. It's never been done before. But the case for it, though, is that Brooklyn has the highest upside out of any of these Eastern Conference teams without a doubt. If you wanted any team for Ben Simmons to land on, if it wasn't Golden State, it was the Brooklyn Nets because they don't have any defensive identity. Ben Simmons gives you that. He doesn't need the ball in his hands because you're going to have Patty Mills and Kevin Durant and Joe Harris and Seth Curry all taking shots. No, he's going to be the perfect run, jump, dunk, small ball, five power forward out there. He's got a case where he can uh, maximize his skill sets, which are fast breaks, which Brooklyn really didn't have a fast break option. Now they do. There can be lineups where it's like Kevin Durant off the court with Ben Simmons and Kyrie. There's a bunch of different combinations you can go there. If you wanted to pair Kevin Durant with another power forward, small ball center, Ben Simmons is the ideal fit, to be honest. And additionally, you get Seth Curry, who I love. Like he's a very, very good guy in a closing lineup potentially. You get those two first rounders, which, hey, they could be used down the road to get another guy down the road. I like it's it's at least a fair asset play. And even Andre Drummond, their their big need was trying to not play the Blake Griffins and James Johnson of the world because they suck at four and the five. But now you actually have a, a backup five who can be big and at least in theory be play 10 to 15 minutes in a playoff game against a Giannis or against a BAM, just to at least like not get killed there. And if you're Philly, I mean, we'll stay on the Brooklyn side, but if you're Philly, you kind of get what you wanted, which is a second guy next to Embiid that you never really had before. You still have a good amount of your depth, especially keeping Maxi and Thibault. I think people forget that Maxi, his improvement this year is what saved this because Maxi improving means they were never going to trade for Dame because it was not worth it. And it means that they were glued in on James Harden from the start of this year until they made this deal. Yes, absolutely. And that's why it makes sense from Philly's standpoint. I just want to talk about Brooklyn really yeah. quickly in terms of their outlook and how their guys actually are going to mesh on the floor really quickly. One of the things that made the 2017 and the 2018 versions of the Golden State Warriors so dangerous is every time a team would find themselves in a close playoff game with them, there was one difference that that team had that put them head and shoulders ahead of every other team. And it was a Curry and Durant two-man game. Seth Curry is good enough in terms of taking down screen ball handoffs, as well as being able to flare screen, get open, moving backside and a bunch of other 
kinds of actions that Brooklyn, I would assume with Steve Nash calling the shots, are going to hope to implement. When Seth Curry was working two-man games late in games earlier this season as well as last season with Joel Embiid, we never really saw teams blitz the pick and roll and send two guys to Embiid because while he does have a decent game off the dribble in terms of pull-up jumping and as well as step-back jumpers as well, he's not Kevin Durant in terms of the ISO game. And that's one of the things that I think really can help this Brooklyn Nets team in the half court sets late, late in games, because they are adding another guy that can dribble pass and shoot. And another guy that you're going to have to divert even more attention to. I think that Patty Mills is going to take a step back in terms of his actual usage on the team. More so than Joe <laughs> Harris. Well, more so than Joe Harris when he comes back because he's still on the team and they were not able to move him yesterday if they had the intention of doing so. But from everybody's point of view in this, I think that there's really only one clear loser. And I guess it's Tyrese Maxey because he's not going to be probably a perennial all-star, even if he does improve to get to another level or two because of the amount of usage that Harden and Embiid are going to use because those two are the two most heavily used ISO players in the entire game this year. And both of them rank in the top 15 percentile in terms of ISO scoring. So I don't know if Philly is going to be a team that's going to whip the ball around the perimeter quite as much as we are going to be accustomed to, especially with a hardened team where you have the heliocentric dribbler at the top of the key, who's going to draw a double and then find the open shooter. But I'm going to pose a question to you now. Do you oh, think that Harden and Embiid is the best duo in basketball? See, this is where it gets fun because Embiid is so damn good that maybe by, by himself, he's what, a top three or four guy. He's arguably, he's my MVP at least this year, like at least top two with the Jokic. That's kind of the consensus right now. That's It's a very good case. I want to say it's probably a top two or three duo in the league right now, if you think about it, because Jokic doesn't have a Jamal Murray or anything like that. I think Middleton is a step down from Giannis, where I don't think you can classify them as a good duo. Curry, you can argue Curry and Draymond, just but Curry's had a down year a little bit. You can argue LeBron, Anthony Davis, fully, fully healthy, but AD's been kind of in this year. It's kind of not out of the works to say that, yeah, Harden and B might be the best pair, or uh, yeah, Harden and B might be the best pairing currently out of any NBA team. It's like not out of the question. What do you say about that? So I still hearken back to potential uh, LeBron James and Anthony Davis because of what both can present on both ends of the floor, as well as I think that their two-man game meshing. If Davis can just hit jump shots, which he hasn't been able to all season. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the case right now, even before we've seen, you know, Harden and be don the same jersey yet, they are a slight step above just because of the offensive regression of Anthony Davis. But I I'm going to be interested to see how Tyrese Maxey actually plays as this second off-ball guard because he is going to bring the change of pace play to this team, who I think is going to be one of the slowest paced teams in the entire NBA now, where they're going to focus on getting defensive stops. But with Harden walking the ball up the floor, taking off six or seven seconds of the shot clock before they even get into their first action, whether it's a pass or a dribble handoff or a flare screen or whatever it is, I'm going to be interested to see how much they use Tyrese Maxey in terms of his off-ball movement, in terms of back-cutting, because 
I think that what makes sense besides just running a ton of Harden and Embiid pick and rolls is getting the ball out of Harden's hands quickly and lobbing it to Embiid in the high post and letting him face up because now you have guys that have gotten better in terms of moving off the ball. And that's the one part of this that I think people have forgotten in terms of Harden's time in Brooklyn as an off ball player offensively. That was for the first time really since he was in OKC where he had a legitimate second guard that could actually play make not for himself mostly, but for others as well. And we'll see if Tyrese Maxey's change of pace play throws off this team's chemistry in terms of how fast they want to play, or if he becomes a better spot up shooter as he's already shown flashes and signs of doing this season. Well, I'm glad you're transitioning to the Philly perspective of this because that's the most intriguing. Because on paper, Kevin Durant and Ben Simmons, that whole Brooklyn team fits together. This Philly team, though, is very interesting because, of course, we know this better than anything that, yes, on paper, certain teams might be better than others. But when it comes to the fit, entirely different. And Maxie's, of course, the wild card in this. You have this guy who up and down, ball needs to be in his hands. He can play off ball, but he's not the – he's kind of a – the, he's a little overrated as a three-point shooter, I think, compared to yeah, what... Let's, let's not act like he's Devin Booker moving without the ball. Exactly, yeah. So, and then, of course, like, there's the thing, Embiid, awesome drop coverage, big man. Harden's always been in a switch system. Embiid yeah. needs the ball in his hand, especially on the high post or in the mid post. Harden's going to be at the top of the key with the ball in his hand. Now, the case, I, I'd argue this for Philly, I think Harden's going to figure it out, and here's why. There was no motivation in Brooklyn because think about that situation, not, not to bring it back to Brooklyn, but think about it. You're playing Kevin Durant out for basically the last month and, and now probably another three yeah. weeks of the year. Kyrie is only playing on your road games and only some of them. Your, your team was better away than at home, which goes to show how bad this like vaccine mandate thing, not only screwed up Kyrie's playing time, but really messed up this chemistry. It was an untenable situation and it had run its course. If you're Harden now, you're in the perfect situation. You need to rebuild your credibility because now you've jumped to two different teams in less than two years, I think, or at least two NBA seasons. But yeah, he needs playoff validation. Yeah, and you he's never had Embiid before. Like, he's always had another guard like Chris Paul or Westbrook. He's always had, like, go-to scores like KD, Kyrie. He's never had a dominant big man like an Embiid or any guy like that. And Embiid is basically running the Hakeem Olajuwon path right now where he could be in that conversation five years from now. And the best part about this is that he doesn't need to have a huge workload. Embiid will do that for him. Philly's got the maxis of the world who can take the pressure off Harden. And more importantly, Harden's playing for his guy, Dale Morey. Like we've already seen with this trade and with this deal that there's a strong relationship, unsurprisingly, between these two guys. I've been telling people my conspiracy, but you know how Harden accepted his player option. He could have made more money declining the player option and signing a longer-term contract for more money. So there was definitely a negotiation, like, if you trade me to Philly and somehow get me there, I'll accept the player option for less money and we'll work something out down the road. Without a doubt, he is committed to Philly, and I think this could really make them the best team, at least with a really high upside in the East. Yeah, so I think – now would be a respectable time to talk about how this team fares and stacks up against the rest of the Eastern Conference because I'll go one step further and just answer me this. The Eastern Conference is far and away the better of the two conferences at this point? Agreed. Okay. 
So now we can talk about what the potential Eastern Conference playoffs looks like. There is a world where we get Miami versus, at the very worst, Boston, who has been the number one defense in basketball by a mile over the last month. I'm, I'm or, crapping myself right or, now. <laughs> or Chicago in the first round. Then there's also a potential world where Philly draws Cleveland, which is essentially the worst matchup that they can come to in terms of a first round series, in terms of their ability to create off the dribble, their ability to guard ball handlers and guard at the rim. And then Milwaukee and Brooklyn, it's not completely out of the cards that those two can draw each other in the first round. I know that that's something that I don't want to see as somebody who personally picked the Milwaukee Bucks to win the NBA championship before the season. But for the first time, I actually think that the Eastern Conference not only has the top tier talent in terms of the championship contenders, but they are also a super deep conference because no matter really how you slice it, the Charlotte Hornets are at best the seventh best team in the conference. And they're a team that also just got a underrated, but a bit overlooking haul at this trade deadline. And man, the entire Eastern Conference playoffs, even the first round, is going to be really intriguing to me. That's what makes this trade deadline to go big picture so much more fascinating because every team except for, I believe, Miami and Chicago – well, like a lot of these – Yeah, a lot – yeah, we, we traded crazy Okpala, which actually kind of helps because we might be uh, maybe adding something on the bottom market. You never know. Yeah. Uh, but the bottom line with this trade deadline from a big picture perspective is that by this point in the season – we know kind of the tiers in the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference. We know who the top two or three teams are, then that next group. But Brooklyn right now, which is funny, is in the play-in tournament, but they're also like five-ish games back from the one seed. So the difference between seed one through seed seven-ish eight is kind of like five or six games. Every team's kind of compiled together. I don't personally agree that, you know, a team like Cleveland's probably better than Milwaukee, even though in the standings they might be better, but... I'm not saying that. No, no, I agree with you. But what I'm saying is that this is a very competitive Eastern Conference and only four teams can make the semifinals, which means that two of these juggernauts are not going to make it past round one, which is a crazy thing. And that's like that's just going to make this season even more fascinating. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think we can talk about in the Eastern Conference is Chicago essentially staying pat at the trade deadline. I don't know if they're another team that could get into this buyout market. There are a couple of players that I could see potentially helping them in the buyout market, but they're still a essentially undersized team when it comes to their back line because Nikola Vucevic is not known as much of a rim protector and really has not been at all. They're a team that's gotten killed on the glass, especially compared to some of the best teams in the entire NBA. I mean, this side of Philly, they've been the second worst rebounding team. And I don't think that really anybody believes that Philly's rebounding issues are going to haunt them at all. Then I guess, so in terms of the tiers, we can talk about whether or not Brooklyn is right on the level of Philly and Milwaukee as of right now. I think that we can basically put those three ahead of everybody else and just say like, no excuses. You guys have three of the six best players, no matter how you really look at it. I mean, it's LeBron, Curry, Durant, Jokic, Giannis, and Embiid in some order of the top six. Then they have three of those six best players in the league. 
each on different teams, the MVP calibers. And then from there, we take a step back. And I think that Miami is the team that's kind of in their own tier. They're kind of oh, yeah. in the, the one B range because they're going to have probably the best defense in terms of a lineup that they can put on the floor at all times, because like it or not, Bam Adebayo has come back from this injury with a reinvigorated fire, which I love. Well, we also have Kayla Martin, who might be the next Steph Curry, apparently. <laughs> He's been so uh, yeah. I mean, hey, don't overlook Max Struess and Gabe Vincent, who if Caleb Martin is Steph Curry, I guess those who put together would be Clay Thompson. Well, Max Struess actually plays some defense, so, you know, That's, like he yeah. actually kind of gets the ball. Like, here's a good way to put it. Uh, before we do contender stuff, because you're analyzing it very well, Let's label like, is there a, is there are both sides in the Philly Brooklyn trade winners to kind of close this up? Because I think so, right? Like for now, like Philly got their guy, they didn't overpay for him, and they got. I think more importantly, the Ben Simmons cloud is gone from this team, so now they actually know what the the goal is for the end of this year. Because before it was like, oh, like we're gonna scoop by in the playoffs, we'll see what happens. And more importantly, if you're Philly, we talked about this before. I've said this for the last five months. You do not want to waste a year of Embiid's prime because Ben Simmons decides not to play for your team. You want to maximize his prime. And if you're Brooklyn, if this works out, Ben Simmons could be a top 20 player in the league. Like, it's not insane. He was before. And you pair him with Kevin Durant, who has a case to be the best player in the world, and with Kyrie, who's a great third banana. I think both sides kind of win this trade. Absolutely. I think that the two biggest winners, though, are Daryl Morey, who understood that staying patient in terms of the Ben Simmons situation and not throwing it out for Bradley Beal way earlier in the season was ended up something that was perfect for his team. And then Ben Simmons is also the other biggest winner because Ben Simmons knew that he also still had value to both squads in terms of what he can bring. So he was able to elevate his trade value by not playing at all. And then James Harden, I think, understood that he was going to be a Philadelphia 76er come game one of next season. And the only question was whether or not the Brooklyn Nets would get back somewhat close to equal compensation. And both teams ultimately win this. I think if I had to pick a winner, it's slightly, ever so slightly Brooklyn. I think so too, yeah. I, I also think that moving forward, the pairing of Embiid and Harden is stronger than any pairing that Brooklyn could have put on the floor. And I think that that's the team that I would give a ever so slight advantage to in a seven game series. But man, the Eastern conference is loaded at this point. To, to put a close on this Brooklyn Philly trade, because of course in the typical Micah and Dominic fashion, we spent almost half an hour just on this one trade alone. That's man. That's being fair to us. I would have thought that we would be in the 45 to 50 minute range. We, we could have. This could be a four hour pod knowing us too. But to put a close on this, I think we're going to remember this Brooklyn team as the team that had so much potential, could have been one of the best offensive duos of all time, was for that one year, a glimpse, had the best offense we've ever seen. And the Kevin Durant shoe game, coupled with the Kyrie vaccination thing because COVID still plagued it coupled with Harden kind of slowing down from that hamstring yep. and still not looking the same. We're going to look back as one of the greatest what ifs ever, like just down the road. And I want, that's a good note to end it on. Let's get into another winner here. The almighty Indiana Pacers. They did it. <laughs> they did. 
Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the Demontis Sabonis for Tyrese Halliburton swap. I, 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 will, I will say underrated thing with the Harden-Simmons trade was that the C.J. McCollum to the Pacers and the Blazers blowing it up trade and the sabonis uh, they that all is not news anymore. That went out under the rug. I mean, you you can call it a trade deadline deal because I guess it happened in the last three days. It did, yeah. But folks in Sacramento, they have every right to be angry with their team. I <laughs> think that they probably feel as though they're cursed. And their fans obviously feel the same way as I do because they showed up at their game when Demonis Sabonis was making his Kings debut with nothing but we miss you, Tyrese. And these, these signs that are saying basically the front office screwed us at the game. Meanwhile, Demonis Sabonis is out there putting in his 20, 10, and 5. Like, it's nobody's business. But if you're Sacramento – Demata Sabonis is a good piece, essentially, if you're trying to add a third option to an already somewhat decent to stack team. But I honestly don't understand why you think that that's going to be your go-to center moving forward. I also think that it's going to stunt Rashawn Holmes' growth. And then the other guys that they brought in, a la Dante DiVincenzo and Trey Lyles, and I guess Josh Jackson as well, who's probably not an NBA player at this point. but I think that you also stunt Davion Mitchell's growth, and I don't see a legitimate path forward with this organization where they can feel like they're going in the right direction. The only thing you can possibly say from the Kings' standpoint is Kings going to King, basically. Well, the, well their path to- forward they decided was the playing tournament. That's what they're saying with this trade. Because So to break down the deal, Indiana got Tyrese Halbert and Buddy Heald and Tristan Thompson. Sacramento got Sabonis, Jeremy Lamb. Justin Holiday, and then a second rounder in 2027, way down the road. If you're Indiana, you got to love this trade for a lot of reasons. Number one, I've been saying this for the longest time out of the Sabonis-Turner pairing. Sabonis is the better player, but Turner's the easiest fit. And a lot of people knew this. You trade Sabonis, you get off the BS, like fringe all-star acronym that he has on his name. You take back Halliburton, who everyone wants on their team and everyone's especially Phoenix is kicking themselves in the foot for not drafting him. And he's under contract with that rookie deal fits perfectly next to Malcolm Brogdon and miles Turner. He flashed so much greatness in Sacramento when Fox was out, but nobody talked about it because it's Sacramento and nobody cared. And more importantly, you keep miles Turner. So he's playing the five. Now your, your pick is going to suck this year because Brogdon's out, Turner's out. You can never, you can, you don't have to rush them back. And Duarte is an old rookie. Yeah, and you know the stat. They haven't had a top ten or a, a pick that was ten or lower since uh 1986, I believe, or 88. Like it's been that long since they've had and like. The crazy thing is they were gonna have it the year that they traded for Ron Artest, but they decided not to. So they traded for Ron Artest and got away from that top ten pick. Like the last pick they've had was Paul George, I believe, at 11 or 10 in that draft. So they haven't had like a chance to draft a a guy who can be a franchise player, which this draft has a lot of high upside guys. If you're Indiana, he's going to be under the Rick Carlisle system. Indiana did what we wanted them to do. They picked the direction and they saw the writing on the wall, especially I pointed to the stat in the standings where they were like five and a half games above the Magic and the Pistons, but five and a half below the Knicks for that next spot in the East. So they were literally sandwiched in mediocrity land, yeah. but now they know where they're going and they have a plan. They do. And Tyrese Halliburton is a guy that has validated all of the pre-draft talk about 
he is going to be the steal of the draft. There's no way that he falls out of the top 10, yada, yada, yada. Even the New York Knicks were poised to draft him until they just decided for whatever reason that Obi Toppin was the play. Imagine if the Knicks, they would have had their starting point guard a year ago. But well, well, Kemba Walker flame, flamed out pretty well, right? <laughs> yeah, and I guess Evan Fournier is great at moving without the basketball and whatever. But <laughs> Yeah, from Indiana's point of view, they have their starting point guard now. And I guess that Malcolm Brogdon and Duarte, they'll probably have to figure out which one of those two is not on the team moving forward. I've heard reports from Pacers camp saying that Malcolm Brogdon is going to be one of the better trade assets in the offseason. Who knows? I mean, Utah could probably use a point guard of that level. Oh, we'll get to Utah. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, we will. But so – from Indiana's point of view, they now have a legit point guard. They have their all-time starting center, and they are going to still need pieces when it comes to the front court. They were able to hold on to TJ Warren, who I guess is going to be the starting small forward when he comes back, and they actually have a path forward, be it something that has a lot of upside and who knows really what the actual floor is, But at this point, they're a team that's fighting for the play-in in the Eastern Conference. They know that this is not their season in terms of taking a huge step forward. But I enjoy the fact that they were able to get some draft compensation for this trade as well. And they seem as though they know what they're doing. Well, and this also ties into another reason why they're the winner, the Karis LeVert trade. If you look at the pieces of that trade, Indiana just – dished out Karis LeVert by himself. Indiana, all they got back was Ricky Rubo's expiring, so they don't have to worry. They get a ton of cap flexibility on two fronts because Rubio's gone, and LeVert needed an extension the following season, so that's good. And look at the picks that Indiana got. They got a 2022 first-rounder from uh, the Cavs, which is going to convey because it's lottery-protected. Cavs are making the postseason. And then this Second rounder from Houston. Houston's like one of the worst teams in the NBA. It's like it's going to be a high 30s pick. Great pick for Indiana. And then a second rounder from Utah. No disrespect to your Utah team, but 2027 is a long ways away. And anything can happen with the Gobert Mitchell or whatever is the iteration of that Jazz team. Indiana just went away with cap space and a ton of assets to use down the road. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you this. If the Jazz are not at least in the finals by 2027, I can assure you that Donovan Mitchell will not be on the team anymore, sad to say. But, okay, so from the Kings' standpoint, we understand that they just decided to go all out to make a play-in, and I guess that that's probably the right move in the short term for them. But I kind of feel bad for Harrison Barnes, who's probably the biggest loser in this entire trade, that he was not a part of this. And he's also a guy who definitely has some good years left on his contract, as well as some good years left in his prime, and could have totally helped a series of title contending teams looking for a legit small forward. But I guess the only way that we can look at this is Indiana won, pretty decent size margin as well and Sacramento is just going to be forever tormented because they can't play defense well you mentioned yesterday the series of Woj and sham bombs and an underrated trade that also happened with Indiana they gave up Torrey Craig to Phoenix again they got Jalen Smith who's a lottery pick who by the way Phoenix declined the team option of they took him before Halliburton so now they have Halliburton and the guy that Phoenix took before Halliburton 
They can re-sign him to a cheap deal. He had great potential when Biombo and Aiden were both out. And they got a future pick for that, too. So Indiana did what we wanted to do. They loaded him up. We're not going to be talking about them until July because they're probably going to be tanking the rest of the season, which is totally okay. So I'm happy with this. And if you're an Indiana fan, you got to be really happy that your team is done with this Sabonis Turner pairing. I feel like for the last seven freaking years, we have told this team, get rid of one of these guys, please, so we can, like, have some sanity. But it's back. Another winner, I mean, I think this is where – I mean, we should probably touch on the uh, McCollum trade next because that was the first blockbuster domino that fell – this season, uh, huge, huge trade for the Pelicans and for, of course, the Blazers. They give up in a span of a couple hours, McCollum, Larry Nance, all their top guys, and kind of hit the reset button here. What were your thoughts kind of from both sides of that deal? From that deal, I would say that CJ McCollum is the short-term answer for the New Orleans Pelicans. And I think that it also spells Zion Williamson is coming back this season and be it as a team that started the season one and 12, they have played 500 ball since, and they find themselves in the play-in tournament if the season were to end today. And I guess that they are a team that feels as though they could spell the end of the Lakers season come the play-in, but I don't understand the amount of picks and I guess players that they gave up. That's why I think that Portland won this in in the short term. But Portland, now that they have these new guys, they just have a clusterfuck in terms of the amount of guards. They have 15 <laughs> guys on the team, nine of which are guards, eight of which are six foot five or shorter. And they were going to have nine of which that were five, six foot five or shorter until they moved Nikhil Alexander Walker again. So I think there is something to be said for Portland in terms of trying to work around Dame which is what Woj has tweeted, and that's what I'm hearing from everybody in Portland. I think that that's probably the short-term move if Dame is going to stand pat and say that I'm fully engaged with this team and I want to stay prideful, I'm going to be loyal to this team. He's still of that standpoint, even though this would be definitely the time that if you're listening to this, Damian Lillard, please, just for your own sake and from a basketball standpoint, you have still some good years left in your prime. You're still absolutely a top 15 player when healthy. You can still go and find another team that's in need of a point guard. And yeah. I mean, geez, at some point he could end up in Miami if Kyle Lowry is able to flame out after a couple of years with that pairing. But I guess Portland now has a ton on their plate in terms of guards. They still have no help in the front court but at the same time downsizing from cj at 30 mil to josh hart at 12 million dollars and Nikhil alexander walker who was way less than 12 million they have some cap flexibility coming into this offseason who if they're going to stick with dame as their number one they could potentially get jeremy grant for next to nothing this offseason and they could sign our excuse me not rj barrett but julius randall as well there's a lot to unpack from this Portland Trailblazers, the two trades, because there's the McCollum trade, and then there's the trade that everyone forgot about where they just dumped Powell and uh, CovCov to the Clippers for basically nothing. Because it's hard to grade. On the one hand, they picked the direction, which is like they wanted to get rid of all these veterans who either were overpaid or on a lengthy contract or who were done. Like Covington, for instance, they were going to have to re-sign with the bird rights trap. It was going to be a horrible deal. 
Powell's making another, what, four, four. He was on a five for 90. Now it's like four for whatever. You do the math. Larry Nance is making like 10 to 11 a year. McCollum's deal is quietly horrible because it's like 30 million a year, which is like not that good. He's not an all-star, yeah. So now they shed all that money. But the problem I have, though, is that then there's these rumors that they want to rebuild with the assets they have around Dame. What are the assets? Because the assets they have are Keon Johnson, the lottery, the basically near lottery pick they got from the Clippers, Justice Winslow with the question mark, because I, I think he's kind of more done than an asset. They got a first round question mark behind Justice Winslow. (laughs) Maybe five for every team he's been on. Uh, What's it called? The the first rounder they got from New Orleans. The second rounders they got from New Orleans. And that's kind of it. In terms of big assets they can use to make a good trade for a star that they said they wanted to. That's where I have a problem with it. Because the real move should be trade Dame. That should be the real move. Trade Dame now while he's in his prime. We we talked about this ages ago when the Portland news is breaking. That that's kind of the go-to move here. Yeah, that's been the go-to move since the offseason. And that's when I thought that Dame was going to say, finally, I love you, Portland. We've had a great run, but it's just not going to work out. I wish you all the best, but I'm out. That's certainly not where we are even after this trade deadline. There are still – planning to build around Dame full-time. I think that they have the assets to make it work, but like you mentioned, what are the assets? It's mostly cap space and then a bunch of players that are B minuses to in the C range. So the amount of guys that they can build a prominent trade around to get back a borderline to fully all-star player. I don't know if they actually have that at this point. And I think that New Orleans won this deal because New Orleans still feels as though the pairing of Ingram as well as Zion, if he comes back this season, is going to be enough to make it work with CJ Moore in a on-ball playmaker's role. But I think the next trade to go to, because I think we kind of covered it all, we know what the mindset is here. Although I will say New Orleans standing pat uh, and getting McCollum basically means that I kind of like the McCollum fit actually with Portland, and they, they quietly have a very good team. Like If Zion comes back, that's a scary team to play in the play-in tournament. Oh, especially with JV getting healthy at the right time as well. Yeah. I think the next trade to move on to is more of like a shocker trade, which was the, the, the Porzingis trade. Just totally out of left field that he gets moved to the Wizards. It's kind of like shitty contract for two equally shitty contracts because DeVos Bertans yeah. is the most overpaid contract in the entire NBA. And Dinwiddie quietly is having a horrible year. Is there a really a winner for this trade? Because I kind of want to say Dallas in a sense. But because I'm not a huge Wizards fan of where their team's going, but part of me is just like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, I think that's the right way to look at this trade. The other right way to look at it is there is no winner, but there's a clear loser, and that's Luka Doncic. (laughs) The entire talk out of the Mavericks organization was we're going to get this guy a legitimate four to play with or we're going to try to get him an all-star guard to play alongside if it we were is, to you don't think davos bertans is a legitimate four i, th- I think he's <laughs> is davos bertans the guy that has struggled to play minutes on the washington wizards as their ninth man well like, if you were if you were if you recall real quick remember how the nba bubble happened and he was on an expiring deal bertans and he could have come back to the wizards to showcase his skills and he's like now nah, i'm good i'll just take my 80 million dollars i'm gonna give the option yeah i mean he's getting more money than boyan bogdanovich and essentially <laughs> as three-point shooters they're on the same level and bogey does everything else better so obviously well overpaid and i think that 
Dallas just seemed like they needed to unload some money. If that's the only way that I can look at this, I also think that it was a sense of complacency from Dallas. I would grade that this deal is maybe a C at best for them. And years from now, when it's time to offer Luca the Supermax, Luca is probably going to look at this roster and say, I have to do everything for this team like he did last night. They dropped, he dropped 51, I think is a career high for Luca. And I don't know if they have a legitimate path forward in terms of getting to their top end potential besides Luca looking at this roster like the 07 Cavs that LeBron eventually had before he realized that people are going to judge me based on the amount of championships that I win at least one, if not more. And eventually I'll have to either demand somebody else come play with me. Who's a really good player or go elsewhere to try and win a championship. But man, this Dallas team, I think they just got worse at this trade deadline and they got some players that could help in the future, but Dinwiddie does not work alongside Luca and Jalen Brunson and Davis Bertans is to me, not any better than Reggie Bullock, who is starting to play better recently. Well, so here's the thing. So the case you, you've bought me into Mavericks kind of losing this trade because the real losers that you're trying to put pieces around Luca and it's not working. The only case I have for this though, is that, it's kind of like addition by subtraction where maybe getting rid of Porzingis frees the floor more open for Luca. Dinwiddie's an overpaid, but uh, he can be a third guard. Like, you know, you kind of have this Luca Brunson Dinwiddie rotation. Like Dinwiddie can create off the dribble and run a pick and roll and stuff. Brunson will have the ball more in his hands. So you kind of figure that out. You mentioned the querying money thing. They just re-signed Dorian Finney-Smith to a new contract. They're going to probably re-sign Jalen Brunson or sign and trade him, whatever it may be. And Hey, like, if there's anybody who can revive DeVos Bertans' career besides LeBron, it's a guy in Luka who could generate good looks from the three-point land. And defense isn't all of a concern because the Jason Kidd system apparently works way too damn well defensively. So They're switching the most of any team in the league, and it's working, even if they don't have KP in the middle deterring everything at the rim. Well, and that's the thing. They're switching everything. But now that KP's gone, that switching system, they're really standing pat with that. And in a postseason, you guys who could shoot threes and kind of dribble, and they got those guys. Now, I don't agree with it because the reason why I'm more, like, lenient toward Dallas is more because Luke is just so good he can make it work. But it does tie into the fact that Luke is going to get very pissy very quickly in a couple of years if they don't get another guy next to him. Oh, I totally agree with that. I mean, we laid out the six best players in the NBA, and Luca is probably in that next tier right below those six. And at some point, though, when does Luca look at this roster the same way that it's taken Damian Lillard until he's going to be 32 by the time he plays again to realize that you can't actually win with this group? I am disappointed in Dallas, even as somebody who is a fan of a team in their same conference. I don't understand what they were thinking here. And if they were to give up KP, I thought it was at least for Pascal Siakam, but I guess at worst, it would have been Jeremy Grant, and I just can't understand what they were thinking. Well, one more thing on Dallas here is that I, I said this the other day with a couple of guys. They can still make the final somehow. It's crazy to think this, but in an ideal world, they can still somehow make the finals because Luka is that good. And I will say, I think the reason why the Mavs did this trade, 
they knew the KP fit with Luca is not good. So they were like, we need to get rid of this guy now before it gets worse. He's injury prone. We need guys who can play. And they got two guys back who I think can play in a playoff series. Like Dinwiddie can be, can play 25 minutes in a postseason game. And DeVos Bertans in a small sample size could just be on the floor. I don't think it's good to have him on the floor sometimes, but he could be on the floor. That's kind of the mindset I had with Dallas. It's the reason why I gave the Wizards a bad grade because they're trading for KP, but Bradley Beal's not signed yet. That's a huge, huge risk there. And maybe there's loyalty there, whatever, but it, this is a weird situation that kind of has been forgotten about this year where Bradley Beal is showing he wants to stay with the Wizards, whatever, but he's not signed the contract extension yet. And there's no incentive to wait. So what's going on there? Oh, well, I don't think that there's necessarily an incentive in Washington besides we need to sell tickets and we're in the nation's capital. So we're going to solve our problem, Davis Bertans and Spencer Dinwiddie, even for the time that Bradley Beal was healthy this season. Beal played amazingly when Dinwiddie was off the floor. And when he was on the floor, he was an average guard at best. So I think that Washington still feels that they can build a team around Bradley Beal, even if he's going to have defensive shortcomings, because Denny Avdia is still a player who has taken minor to somewhat major strides under the weather in Washington. You saw the Brooklyn game last night. He was very, very good. I loved him. (laughs) He's amazing at guarding small guards. And I think that you add another rim protector alongside Daniel Gafford, then this can actually work from Washington's standpoint, assuming that, you know, knock on wood, that KP can stay on the floor. Yeah, the Wizards' perspective is the one that I'm kind of more of a loser on. Um, I think there's two more trades we need to get to before we kind of wrap up winners and losers and really talk about some losers here because there's a lot of them. Surprised me that I thought. Uh, This four-team trade where the Bucks got a Baca is very, very fascinating. To break down how crazy this is, first off, we never see four-team deals that much, so that was a start. Never. Milwaukee got Serge Ibaka and then two second-rounders. I guess Ibaka was from the Clippers, second-rounders are from the other teams. The Kings got this platter of DiVincenzo, Trey Lyles, and Josh Jackson. The Clippers got Rodney Hood and Semi Ojale, both from the Bucks, And then the Pistons got Marvin Bagley. Lots to unpack there. But I think the, the focus, though, is Milwaukee just found their Brook Lopez solution, got some assets they can use in a potential trade with those second rounders. And I think they solved the DiVincenzo problem by getting Grayson Allen and deciding they're going to take Grayson Allen over uh, instead of overpaying for re-signing DiVincenzo. Yep, that's correct from Milwaukee standpoint. And I think that the thing to focus on here is Serge Ibaka and how he's going to play a role with this team. We've seen that we know that Bobby Portis is going to play big minutes, especially in a playoff series. But I think that this spells cause for concern when it comes to Lopez's injury situation. If that is the case, and we don't know what kind of version we're going to get back from a 33-year-old Brooke Lopez at this point, you need another guy that can space the floor offensively provide some kind of rim resistance and with a team that's going to go to more of a switch heavy scheme in the playoffs, even if they are not going to do that during the regular season, adding another guy that can guard ball handlers that are four to six inches shorter than him is another asset to have. And I think that Milwaukee is just looking at the playoffs as a time when we're going to play defense for the entire second half of games. And we're going to shut teams down because we have the ability to guard the ball very well and create deflections but offensively we're just going to have five assets on the floor that can space around Giannis and are going to be able to pass dribble and shoot and everybody can do that 
especially with Serge Ibaka. Now they have Greg Monroe, who's filling in that rotation big role alongside Bobby Portis. And to me, it just doesn't work. They tried DeMarcus Cousins as well, and Cousins just couldn't stay healthy and was fouling all the time. So Serge Ibaka's defense is not where it was when he was with OKC, but he's not going to be asked to play that same role. And I think that this helps Milwaukee in the short term, especially with their ability to go up against some of the other teams. They're going to put elite pressure on the rim almost every time with Brooklyn and Philly. Well, he's a perfect fit with Milwaukee. Doesn't need the ball in his hand. He's going to be spacing the floor, running pick and roll with Giannis. Underratedly, Milwaukee's biggest weakness all year was not having a five. I mean, no, they had no Brooke Lopez, but they were playing – God knows who, and now they're playing Greg Monroe and DeMarcus Cousins, or formerly DeMarcus Cousins. You solve that problem. If Giannis is in foul trouble, you can go to a buck at the five and play smaller with the one through four. And I think there was a cap with DiVincenzo where he didn't look healthy all year. They sold high on DiVincenzo now before the sample size got way larger. They bought into the King's stupidity, of course, and said, hey, Kings, take Dante DiVincenzo and this uh, – a platter, shall we say, of other guys. I love this from Milwaukee, and I think it's a great trade for them. There's one more trade. Like, there's a couple other moves that matter. I think Thaddeus Young going to the Raptors is cool. Drogic being bought out and going probably to the Mavericks or some other team might be cool. Maybe Miami. We'll see about that. Uh, the Derek White trade to the San Antonio uh, – to the Celtics, pardon me. That's a good trade, kind of for both teams. But the one I want to focus on is your Utah Jazz, where interesting three-team trade here. They dump Ingles – and Elijah Hughes in a second rounder to Portland. They get back Nikhil Alexander-Walker uh, and Juancho Herman Gomez. And then San Antonio gets involved by getting Sadoransky in a second rounder. That's Memphis's. So your solution to, I guess, your problem was getting Nikhil Alexander-Walker and uh, Juancho Herman Gomez. <laughs> yeah. So much for Jeremy Grant. <laughs> about this. When the news originally broke two days ago, I was giddy because I thought that this meant that the Jazz were going to stay on the phones to actually acquire a player. You, you, were, Josh, you were Josh Giddy? You were going to get Josh Giddy? <laughs> well, well, not necessarily Josh Giddy, but yeah, more in the form of Harrison Barnes and or, or not in, but Harrison Barnes or Jeremy Grant, which are both still with their trash teams. And now I'm looking at this team as – we just added more to our problem by just adding more gasoline on the problem. Nikhil Alexander-Walker is a good player, mind you, at $3 million a year. But he doesn't work alongside a team that just now has a bevy of guards, especially with Trent Forrest now playing their main defensive-minded guard that has a nice float game and can play make a little bit. And I'm a little skeptical when it comes to his outlook for the playoffs because at some point, the fact that he can't shoot is going to make it so teams play five on four and they probably double Mitchell while he's on the floor alongside. But Nikhil Alexander-Walker, I'm not sure how he works alongside Jordan Clarkson because they're kind of the same player in terms of a guy that's just going to fire up every opportunity that they get. And we need that flamethrower role as a guy coming off the bench to ignite that second unit. But we're still undersized because we have Conley, Mitchell, Royce O'Neal, Trent Forrest, Jordan Clarkson, and some actually believe that Jared Butler still could get minutes in the playoffs. And Oof. I just don't understand what the Jazz were thinking. If this is the only move that they had in mind, 
Juancho Hernan Gomez is kind of an interesting idea because the Jazz do not have a big that can shoot. There are sometimes this season when we've seen Rudy Gay play the five and then the Jazz play five out offensively. But man, I don't feel as excited about the trade deadline anymore in retrospect as I thought I was going to when I heard the first news because after the Joe Ingles haul to Portland, I thought that the Jazz were going to stay on the phone and try to get potentially Kenrich Williams or at that time, Thaddeus Young had not been moved yet and he was another player that would have made sense for the Jazz. So my take on this whole Utah thing, they tried to get guys to play around Mitchell, except that they forgot they have Jordan Clarkson and Trent Forrest and a rotation. Literally, they can have an entire team of guards that can't really play the three or the one is from my take. So it's it's Bogdanovich, Pascal. I don't know what Whiteside is going to bring us in the postseason. He could get lazy and flame out. And then I guess Rudy Gay, hopefully he's healthy, can help us help us in the playoff series. And then it's Gobert. Yeah, it's it's and you're the problem with your team, your rotation thins out very quickly after the top five. And that, that's what made the Ingles lost so bad. It wasn't just like, oh, you lost Ingles. You could play him in the closing five. I don't know if Nikhil Alexander Walker or Trent Forrest or even Jordan Clarkson can do that either to level Ingles did. No, they definitely can't because while Trent Forrest is better at basically everything else besides shooting. There's one of the things that makes Quinn Snyder's offensive system so genius is it's four guys that can dribble, pass, and shoot alongside Gobert and or Whiteside, depending on which one's on the floor. And for now, I look at the team as having a significant ceiling that I don't feel as though they've bursted through at any point during this trade deadline or this season. And while I do think that Mitchell is going to be the best version of himself, because he's now having the ball more in his hands and they've actually started to use Conley more off the ball, even when both are on the floor, using Mitchell as the full-time point guard to me makes the most sense because he's able to create the best advantages for himself and for his teammates. But the jazz really did nothing to help that forward spot. And unless Eric Pascal is going to be a guy that plays 25 plus minutes, which he's capable of this season and he's improved his three point shot to the point where we can trust him taking four a game in a playoff series. I don't know what we're getting from those guys. And I just have significant questions because Nikhil Alexander Walker, mind you, is a good player, but we already have Jordan Clarkson and Trent Forrest coming off the bench. Your gloomy outlook has transitioned us perfectly into the latter half of this, which is the losers from this trade deadline, as well as kind of looking at some of the big contenders for like the last half an hour or so. Big, big loser. Got to get out of the way. The Los Angeles Lakers, clearly, because of the, once again, this Westbrook deal, the fact that all these reports are out there about Westbrook, trying they're trying to move him, it never works. They didn't do anything because nobody wanted THT in that stupid first rounder and Kendrick Nunn. And the you saw the seven first round, they would be trading for a 14 or 15 year old right now. <laughs> well, my friend, did you see the ESPN show where Richard Jefferson and Perkins were on the uh, telecast and they were like, the Lakers are looking toward the bio market. Both of them started laughing. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's kind of the only way to look at this. Yeah. The l- reports that the Lakers are looking towards the buyout market. Well, if your idea of the buyout market is, I guess, Goran Dragic to play your point guard to 
I guess, supersede the role that Russell Westbrook has already put forth. Then you have Malik Monk and Stanley Johnson is a good defensive player. But again, you can't have a three that can't play offense. Well, well, to be fair, LeBron knows what it's like to play against Goran Dragic in a final series. So maybe he saw That's some true. NBA bubble action. He can maybe, maybe be some useful action. <laughs> oh, geez. So Lakers are a big loser for me. This is kind of a hot take. I think Cleveland's a loser in this because I would have preferred they either just sign a buyout guy to play shooting guard or guard or whatever. Instead, they gave up. I know that they're young or whatever, and, like, they're trying to, like, see what they have with this postseason, with this team in the postseason. But giving up two first-rounders and then taking on Karis LeVert's money and having to re-sign him potentially, that's a lot. The only good side to this is that they know probably Colin Sexton's not going to be the guy, and they're probably going to move Colin Sexton. But then I'm like, to who? Like, I don't know who's going to be taking Colin Sexton if it's not more than a couple second-rounders. So they're a loser for me. What were your thoughts on Cleveland from that point of view from the trade? So you're spot on when it comes to them being a slight loser. I don't think that they are as much of a loser as you think because yeah, it, 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 it's a loser by like default. They're not like, I'm not like okay. yelling over it because here's the thing. Cleveland is a team that is a stacked defensive team in terms of the amount of guys that they can put on the ball and protect at the rim as well. I like Lamar Stevens. Isaac Okoro has gotten better offensively as well. And I think that they needed another shot creator to play alongside Darius Garland for when the first pick and roll gets blown up. They need another guy to swing to the perimeter and reload a lot of those actions to another look for the defense. And while Karis LeVert is not the fully loaded offensive player that you might want from that team, the player who I thought that they were going to try to move heaven and earth to get this trade deadline was going to be Brandon Ingram to be that three role alongside Darius Garland, bringing the ball up the floor. But obviously that ship has sailed. And while Karis LeVert is more of a consolation prize, he's another guy that can help this team offensively. And they don't need any help defensively because when you put their best five up on the court in the final five minutes of, of a playoff game, they're probably a team that's still a first round exit in the Eastern Conference because of how stacked everybody is. But I also could see them given the right matchup, posing problems for, you know, Chicago in a four or five series, or if the Celtics stay red hot and they're able to climb up that high in the standings, they could also upset Boston in the series as well. Another loser, kind of a forgotten about team in this deadline, but the almighty Houston Rockets. Eric Gordon had a queer trade market, and given how many teams were looking to upgrade, not dealing him for something, kind of not good. Ditto for Christian Wood. Did up for some of those guys they have. I don't know. Like, I, like, am I being too harsh on Houston here? Because there were, like, you saw, there were so many trades that went on, especially with, like, these fringe guys. How did nobody, like, even for two seconds? Karis LeVert went for basically two, like, equivalents of a first-rounder, and they couldn't get anything for Eric Gordon? Yeah. Well, I thought that the trade on the table was going to be Eric Gordon to Boston for Josh Gordon and something else. But – Obviously, the Josh Gordon or the Josh Richardson deal happened for Derek White in San Antonio. And great trade, by the way, for Boston. Agreed. Yes, that's very much so what they needed. But I will say, from Houston's point of view, they are losers in the sense of they're trying to lose. But I don't know if you make a whole lot of their deals at the trade deadline until at least the offseason or next season, because ultimately they're a team that 
if they can be bad, then it's in their best interest to be bad and continue to play horribly. So keeping guys on their team that legitimately are not winning players, at least given this, cer this certain system that they play in, I think that it makes sense. They're still on the losing end, but not compared to Luka Doncic or the Los Angeles Lakers. What are your thoughts? So this is a team I had trouble grading. What do you make of the Atlanta Hawks? Because they're a team that's quietly been a little bit better compared to the start of the year. But I feel like they were a team that needed to make a move for something, whether it was to trade Capella, move Collins to the five, put Jeremy Grant at the four, whether it was trade Collins and figure out that whole chemistry problem with Trey Young and some of those guys with the fit. Are they a loser for not doing anything? Or do you think, like, give it time and we'll see what happens? Okay, so ultimately they are still a pretty young team. I think that getting DeAndre Hunter healthy and having him actually develop and take the next step as a secondary ball handler is something that's a must for them. The one thing that to me doesn't make any sense is what they're still trying to do with Bogdan Bogdanovich, who's a guy that was a significant help for them last season, but now can't stay on the floor, is still a bad defender and always has been. But now this is the time last season when they turned the corner and people were starting to look at them as, oh, could they give Brooklyn, Philly, or Milwaukee problems, which it wound up that they did. But now they're not on the same level as so many teams in the Eastern Conference that it's really hard to make the case that while Trey Young has been awesome offensively, he's still arguably the worst defensive player in the league. And there's going to be a certain ceiling that I don't think they can get over besides just the, you know, perfect storm run that they had last season. Yeah, I agree. I think they've got time. We'll see what happens. Clear loser. Should we, uh, unsurprisingly, the Sacramento Kings? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really the only way that you can look at it. We talked about it earlier when we discussed the Indiana and Sacramento swap. Man, what were they thinking? Tyrese <laughs> Halliburton is your point guard of the future. No, the Darren, man... Darren Fox is. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh man yeah De'Aaron Fox he's getting that max money because he's definitely on the same level as Donovan Mitchell and Brandon Ingram from the and uh, Bam Adebayo right he's all those guys yeah exactly he's all in uh, one <laughs> Jeez, I mean they picked the wrong two of the guys and everybody in Sacramento knows it because Tyrese Halliburton has a three-point shooter off the dribble and a pull-up shooter is top five in the league in both categories he's awesome and has been since he came into the league last season He's essentially a guy that was just LaMelo Ball playing on a team that wasn't quite as flashy in terms of the pieces around him. And now, man, I don't know. I would have at least loved to have seen if San Antonio was a team that was looking to just have good young players, at least send Tyrese Halliburton to San Antonio and let him play alongside DeJounte Murray. That, that would have made more sense. Because well, at, at, least, least, at least they have uh, they have Josh Jackson to look forward to, right? <laughs> Okay. Josh Jackson, as much as he was great in college and then he was a top three pick in the NBA draft, Josh Jackson at this point probably shouldn't be on an NBA roster. And Trey Lyles is the guy who might be one of the last few to even make the roster in Sacramento. So that should just give you an idea that their new lineup of, I guess, Dante DiVincenzo in the starting lineup right away alongside De'Aaron Fox in the backcourt, and then Harrison Barnes 
Rashawn Holmes and Demontis Savonis. On paper, that oh. should be a decent team. Oh, Christ. But, Sorry, but no. <laughs> but, yeah. I will say, real quick winner here, but the Detroit Pistons sneaking in and getting Marvin Bagley here, kind of a little – I like that. I like – great fit for Detroit uh, with Marvin Bagley. But anyway, I digress. We have like 15 or so minutes. I think it's a good time to talk about some of the contenders that weren't brought up in the trade deadline uh, to at least the extent that I wanted to. First one's Miami. Not to bring him up because, you know, I'm a Heat fan, but – they didn't make a move. I mean, they dumped Kazak Paula, woohoo, but they kind of have this same team now. I kind of like where they're going. What's they're the first seed right now, and they have a game and a half lead, and everything's great. Their problem is that they might face Boston or the Brooklyn Nets in the first round, potentially, if uh if things yep. put out right. Or they could face the Wizards or Hornets, which I would love, or the Hawks, one of those teams. I would <laughs> adore that. What are your thoughts on Miami so far this year? Because we haven't talked about them in a minute. So you're spot on in terms of their first round opponent because I guess the Eastern Conference is the new mid-2000s West where there is no easy series regardless of what seed you have. And now I'm looking at this team as the best defense in the NBA, or at least should be on paper because they have so many guys they can flip in and out. P.J. Tucker is playing, I guess, the best offensive basketball of his career. Oh, yeah. And still brings that enforcer role as their – four that they needed I mean you miss Jay Crowder in terms of just being a guy that can also create something off the dribble and is more of a better on-ball playmaker if you needed another guy to fill that role but the amount of shooting that this team has Jimmy Butler's leadership Bam Adebayo has gotten better in terms of his playmaking and his ability to step out and hit the mid-range two from the free throw line as well as being able to hit threes when teams go zone against Miami, which I've noticed they have done more so as of recent. This is a team that is still going to be one of the top two or three in terms of well-coached in the playoffs. And I love where they are at this point. How can you not? I do too. They're, they're my new darling. <laughs> they're so oh, good. Wow. This okay. So well, original. <laughs> well, the thing with Miami that's so funny is that they have so many guys that come out of nowhere. Like Gabe Vincent is going to be somehow in our closing rotation. Ditto for Max Schuess who came out of nowhere. And what's funny is they still have a move to make. Like I think this offseason they could trade Duncan Robinson and something and get like a – not Jeremy Grant or Harrison Barnes, but like a guy who makes like that ballpark of money. And they yeah. can somehow make this team even better. And all their – like Bam Adebayo is young. Tyler Hero is young. These role players that have come out of nowhere are young. That takes the workload off Kyle Lowry and Jimmy Butler. This is a little bit of a hot take. There is a case to be made that Kyle Lowry deserves to be on either the all-star team or the all-NBA third-team guard. It sucks that there's a lot of guards. It's a take. It's a take, I know. It sucks there's a lot of guards, but – On the all-NBA guards? Remember remember that whole stretch where there was no Jimmy and no Bam and half the team had COVID and the Heat were still way above 500 and the only guy on the team was Kyle Lowry and a bunch of, like, blah – like they were playing yurts of in like twenty, like thirty minutes a night. They had nobody. They were, it's just a take. It's my heat. I don't take think that Donald Mitchell, if you were to run the ballots right now, makes the All NBA on any team. I don't <laughs> think you can really make the case that Kyle Lowry has had a better season than Mitchell. Well, to be fair, in the All Star Game draft, they always draft Mitchell last because they, everyone forgets how good Donald Mitchell is. So to be fair, <laughs> yeah. I mean, until last night when James Harden went last. <laughs> so we talked about Philly. Talked about Brooklyn. 
We talked about a little bit about Cleveland and Milwaukee. We kind of know what their team uh, their teams are. Any thoughts on the Celtics or Raptors? Quietly, both teams are actually doing very, very good. Uh, especially Toronto. They won eight in a row. They're kind of on fire. Toronto is on fire, and they're the team that has even slipped my mind in terms of talking about the undercover sleepers in the Eastern Conference. That's another team that I guess Miami could run into in round one. And they've also been somewhat of a kryptonite. They've been a kryptonite for a lot of teams because they're also brilliantly well coached. And I guess that they didn't really make a notable deal at this trade deadline as they thought, or at least I thought they were. OG Anunoby has gotten much better this offseason. And we see his offensive game finally taking that Norman Powell offensive role, but also being one of the elite top tier point of attack defenders in the league. And then Pascal Siakam has gotten his groove back after looking like he was just playing the zombie role in terms of a guy that looked like he was playing at age 33 when he was actually in his mid twenties. But now they've gotten that Fred Van Fleet and Gary Trent Jr. Gary Trent Jr. Dropped 42 last night. Like they have so many guys that are also these irrational heat check guys because they have everybody can shoot the three and Scotty Barnes has gone from being guy that's listed as can't shoot. And in terms of his just draft grades that might hold him back in terms of reaching his fullest potential to now a guy that looks like he could at some point in his career be the next Giannis. Yeah, no. And what I love about this team, they've run the small ball lineup with Van Fleet, Trent Jr., uh, Barnes, Siakam, and Anunoby in some order. And they're just so lengthy, so dominant. I think a good team to end on, the Western Conference, we know like what the Golden State Warriors story is. We know the Memphis story. Those have been being like a dead horse. A team that people forget on, have been forgetting about a lot this season. Can we talk about the Phoenix Suns real quick? They just beat the Bucks last night by like a lot. They are four and a half games ahead of the Warriors for the sec- for the to keep the number one seed in the West. They are a astounding 16 games ahead of the seventh seed and way more for the play-in. And the Eastern Conference, the best team has 36 wins. They have 45 wins. Like they're on pace for 60 wins right here. Are we oh. are people sweeping on Phoenix right now? It's a foregone conclusion that they're going to get to 60 wins. They're on pace for 68 wins at this point, and that would put them in the upper tier teams all time. Who knows if they actually get over the hump? Because I think at this point, especially considering Chris Paul's age and who knows how many great years he has left, it is essentially championship or bust, which is why I thought that they were going to make a last minute heave at the trade deadline, which I guess Torrey Craig is their last minute heave. He's got chemistry. (laughs) They do. Yeah. I mean, they're bringing him back from last season, but they are a team that quietly won the Landry Shamit for a Javon Carter swap. And in terms of a top nine players, their usual starting five is also the most used lineup of any team in the league because they've stayed so healthy the entire season. Then besides that, their top four guys coming off the bench which is campaign cam johnson javelle mcgee and landry shamit are also a great four to come off the bench because cam johnson is one of the best shooters in the league mikhail bridges is one of the best three and d guys in the league campaign in terms of commanding pick and roll and creating iso and corner three-point shots is one of the best in the league in terms of a backup point guard devin booker and chris paul 
have as strong of an argument as any that they are the best backcourt in the league. And DeAndre Ayton is probably the biggest question mark. Will he take a leap forward this postseason and get them over the top? Or will he stay at his good to great, good or good mostly, but sometimes great role in terms of playing as that lead center? Because they now have a deep center rotation as well with JaVale McGee and Bismarck Biombo, who is, I guess, their 10th guy at this point. I, I, can, I cannot believe we're going to say that a 60-win team is going to have Bismarck Biombo on the roster. That's baffles me. <laughs> a 60-win team that has Bismarck playing some of his best basketball recently and not a guy who is on the floor at the end of games where teams are just racing to go foul him as quick as they can just so he can shoot free throws. So – Phoenix, I think, is championship or bust at this point. At the very least, their finals are bust to at least get back to where they were last season. And then we'll see how they do against any of the Eastern Conference juggernauts if they were to face Brooklyn, Philly, or Milwaukee in the final round. But those are the only three teams that I don't think they would be favorites over, especially Milwaukee and Philly. But We've seen it all season. We saw it last night that this team is just brilliant and they don't make any mistakes. They don't turn the ball over. They make threes, they get to the rim and their shot profiles off the charts. Well, and the last point, the depth is also insane because I watched the game last night. They had foul trouble with Aiden Bridges and Booker, and they somehow won the game by like a commanding lead. And I'll end on this note with Phoenix. We're both the NBA historical fanatics time and time again. If this actually pulls off where Phoenix wins 60 plus games and they make the finals again and Chris Paul, let's say they win it, the legacy that this will, the impact this will have on Chris Paul's legacy, this might bolt him in the top 20. Like we kind of all have him now as like a top 35, maybe 30, maybe 25 guy at best, but this will really put some weight on that resume. Just being age 36 and he's arguably the best player on a back-to-back finals team that might win a title. Like that's a pretty big, and on a 60 win team, I'd add too. So let me ask you a follow-up question besides just being top 20, would this make him the best player ever to not win the MVP award? Oh, I mean, let me think. I mean, mean, Jerry West is the best to me. And then Dwayne Wade is right after him. But besides those two, would you put CP three over Wade then? The candidates would be CP3, Wade, Jerry West. I put it, I put Elgin Baylor on there. He didn't win an MVP, and he was very, very good. Yeah. If Julius Irving didn't win that stupid MVP in 81 over Larry Bird, he would have been on this list, but he freaking won no. it. No. I mean, okay, Julius Irving went to the finals five t- or four times and <laughs> was dominant in whatever league you put him in. So I would still say him over CP3. If, but- if we're winning careers, it's probably Jerry West and then CP3 second because CP3 always has the longevity and all these years where it's like, because like it's so crazy that even now when he's 36 and averaging what, like a 14 and 10 and people still have him like in their MVP ballot because Phoenix is so good. It's like, how can I leave the the best player arguably on what is definitely the best team in the NBA off my ballot. Like, isn't the goal of an MVP most valuable player? Chris Paul has been a uh, valuable with like a capital V and an exclamation point at the end. So that's kind of my take on that. So I don't know. Any any final thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I would still probably have Wade ahead of him as of now, just because Wade's peak certainly eclipses that of, CP3, but CP3 at this point, I mean, the next conversation would be 
CP3 over Isaiah Thomas. CP3 over... I think he's already passed Isaiah Thomas, low-key. Okay, well, he's, then... He's played, it's, it, at that point, it would be CP3 over, like, Jerry West, probably the next guy. Like, or you, you, Oscar you, Robertson? Yeah, or Cur- like, this is a hot team of Curry. There's a, there, you can kind of make a CP3. It maybe, I don't know, like, it's, these historical debates always kick everyone's ass, so, you know. <laughs> they do, but at the same time... I understand that CP3 just doesn't look like he's slowing down, even though we've seen it time and time again that he just can't play 100 games healthy, and that's one of the reasons why his team has not won the NBA championship. But if he were to stay healthy the entire season and get them over the top, if they won the championship this season, oh, then I could entertain a CP3 versus Steph competition but, but curry's ceiling was so much higher though that, that 16 season will never be top for like greatest point guard season ever i don't know so yeah. we, we'll conclude we we need to have our history pod launch soon for nba i swear to god because literally we always <laughs> these yeah. debates are absolutely like gut punching one on this note though any final thoughts on the trade deadline again we will this will go down as one of the craziest trade deadlines we've probably seen in our lifetime my final thought, and I think it's something that we kind of glossed over, was the Trez to Charlotte deal. Trez is not a starting center in the league, but at least that makes this team even more league pass worthy because the amount of down screens that he's going to set, as well as being able to front up and post guys. The one thing that Charlotte needed besides the obvious true center is just a more bruising role on the team. Miles Bridges is their most enforcer and contact drawing player besides pj washington who doesn't play a whole lot but i like that deal in the short term for charlotte and i still love them watching them they don't have much in terms of upside but i'm going to be excited to watch them and then the final thought on the entire trade deadline is the eastern conference playoffs are going to be magnificent and i can't wait well, we're going to have to be on the lookout for that, especially when we probably do an episode down the road previewing the first round once that all goes underway. But, Micah, one of the craziest trade deadlines ever. We got through all the trades. Can't believe we talked about Harden over an hour and 20 minutes ago, but that whole deal went down. A lot of moves happened. So it was an excellent episode. Thank you for being on the pod. Absolutely. Always my pleasure.